Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, uh, recording from my my new office in a new building uh, here at uh, the presenting sponsor, so to speak, of uh, this Onco Farm podcast uh, here in uh, Mountain Home, Tennessee, at the East Tennessee State University VA campus. Uh, so thanks for joining us again. And as a reminder, uh, you can rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Please do that to help other uh, Onco Farm. Uh, listeners find the podcast. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the last two weeks of pre-recorded podcasts. Uh, today we have kind of a, um, a pseudo-special episode. Uh, ten years ago to the day, on July 20th, uh, 2008, uh, a pivotal paper was published in the in, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. It was ap- actually published ahead of print a, you know, a couple months beforehand. But we're using this date because it it's very convenient. Um, so we're going to do kind of a brief history of pemetrexid leading up to this this Scagliotti article in 2008. So let's go back to two, uh, sorry to 1995. Uh, there's a phase one study of at the time pemetrexid was called LY231514, a phase one study in uh, JCO. And um, and again, the goal of any phase one study is to find the the dose limiting toxicity and to determine the maximum tolerated dose that then could be used for a phase two study, especially uh, for traditional antineoplastics. And at the time, uh, in this study, they found the maximum tolerated dose was 30 milligrams per meter squared every week for four weeks with two weeks off. Now, if you're not familiar with pemetrexid at all, our current dose is 500 milligrams per meter squared times one dose every 21 days. So much lower dose. And again, the, the dose limiting toxicity was neutropenia back in that 1995 phase one study. Three years later, 1998, um, there is a um, another phase one study uh, looking at four milligrams per meter square per day uh, times five days of, uh, of like every 21 day cycle. That's 20 milligrams per meter squared per cycle. Again, a lot lower than what we give now. Uh, and then in 1996, and that prior study was in clinical cancer research in 1996 in cancer chemotherapy and pharmacology, we get a phase one study of a one-time dose, 600 milligrams per meter squared every 21 days. And that was the maximum tolerated dose. So uh, that's what we think of today as, as a traditional dose of pemetrexid. Now, in that phase one study where they used 600 milligrams per meter squared as the maximum tolerated dose, there were three drug-related deaths. Um, and that was using just straight pemetrexid, okay? No supplementation of any kind. Um, and then in 2003, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, a phase two study by Scagliotti, GV et al. Uh, so Scagliotti is the last name. This is a phase two study. Now this is in um, malignant pleural mesothelioma, so a rare disease than non-small cell lung cancer where you're used to seeing pemetrexid now. Uh, and the, the schedule was 500 milligrams per meter squared every 21 days, standard dose uh, in today's world. And some of these patients, there were 61 patients in the study, two-thirds received folic acid supplementation, one-third did not. Um, and those who received folic acid and vitamin B12 starting a week to two weeks before treatment, the rate of grade three or four neutropenia was 9.3%. And those who did not receive any folic acid vitamin B12 supplementation, the rate of grade three or four neutropenia was 52.3%. Okay, 50 versus 10%. So a huge difference, and that actually uh, resulted in a protocol change of that phase two study to requiring all patients receive folic acid and B12 going forward. That's why there's an imbalance where there's like 41 and 21 between the groups. 
Okay, so that established the fact that we need this folic acid B12 supplementation, and that prevents or severely minimizes the hematologic toxicity. And in fact, if you have a patient who's receiving single agent pemetrexate and develops severe cytopenia, always, always, always explore and ensure that they're actually taking their folic acid and receiving their B12 on schedule. Because the only times I've seen severe toxicity severe hematologic toxicity with pemetrexid, that's the reason why. And just for completeness sake, I'll also say that these patients should also receive dexamethasone, four milligrams of BID the day before, the day of, and the day after pemetrexid to help uh, prevent uh, skin rashes. Okay, so that's kind of the basics of pemetrexid. And again, okay, now I'm an oncology pharmacist, so now that I'm going down the things about pemetrexid, I also gotta say it's really cleared. Creatinine clearance cutoff is around 45 mils per minute. Uh, so always think about other uh, nephrotoxins like NSAIDs, things like that. There can be some nephrotoxicity that was also seen in phase one studies. Okay, that's the drug. Well, then there's how it works, but that's a different podcast. Okay, let's stick to the brief history of pemetrexid. All right, 2004, uh, JCO, an article by Hannah and colleagues, um, who I actually heard talk one time uh, on a rotation as a student. Uh, this is looking at pemetrexid versus docetaxel for non-small cell lung cancer in the second line setting, so after they had a platinum doublet. And this is the study that actually led to the 2004 FDA approval of pemetrexid for non-small cell lung cancer. So pemetrexid versus docetaxel second line, which at the time docetaxel was the FDA standard reference for second line treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. Okay, overall response rate was basically 9% in both arms. Uh, median progression-free survival was exactly 2.9 months in both arms, and median overall survival was roughly 8 months in both arms. So there was no superiority of one drug over the other. But the rates of grade 3 and 4 neutropenia were 40.2% with docetaxel versus only 5.3% with pemetrexid. So a much more favorable toxicity profile. So they get this gets pemetrexid on the market, uh, gets it a um, an indication against a drug that's pretty toxic and that works just as well as the prior drug. So PEM uh, equivalent to docetaxel. Okay, so now let's go forward four years. Now we're 2008 to uh, the famous or maybe infamous Scagliotti study published in JCO. Uh, and 17,000 patients uh, plus a little bit more, were randomized in the first-line setting with non-small cell lung cancer to either cisplatin gemcitabine or cisplatin pemetrexid. Uh, median progression-free survival was 5.1 versus 4.8 months. Uh, median overall survival, exactly 10.3 months in both, both arms, and slightly lower rates of grade, th grade 3 and 4 neutropenia in the pemetrexid arm, 26.7 versus 15.1%. Also, um, uh, less grade three or four thrombocytopenia, 12.7 versus 4.1%. So we don't see anything particularly new here. We have a pemetrexid-containing chemoregimen versus another platinum doublet. Um, same efficacy with less toxicity. Uh, nothing new from what we saw with the, the pivotal study in the second-line setting. What's different about this study and what was honestly transformative in clinical practice is there was a pre-planned subgroup analysis looking at histology. If you go back to any treatment of non-small cell lung cancer before this article, the treatment is pretty simple. Metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, platinum doublet. Doesn't matter if they had adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, large cell carcinoma. No matter the histology, platinum doublet. Cis, carbo, plus etoposide, paclitaxel, gemcitabine, venorobine, whatever. Well, not whatever, but you get the idea. 
this was the this was the first study that showed that maybe histology makes a difference. So when you look at the histology and you group them by adeno and large cell, so these are the non-squamous versus squamous cell, you saw a difference in how pemetrexid worked. So the adenocarcinoma and large cell carcinoma histology is comprised about 56% of the study population. Uh, and the squamous cell uh, histology patients comprised about 27% of the study population. So the median overall survival uh, in those assigned to the pemetrexid arm was higher in the adeno and large cell subgroup. So 12.6 median overall survival, 12.6 uh, months compared to 9.4 months and those with squamous cells. So almost, uh, you know, a three-month difference in median overall survival. Now, uh, oh, wait, sorry. I'm looking at my table wrong. Scratch that. No, three months, that's too big. No, uh, it was 12.6 months in the pemetrexid arm versus 10.9 months in the gemcitabine arm. In the squamous, so, uh, and that was statistically, statistically significant uh, p-value of point. Zero, uh, 03 although some have claimed that uh, they sh they should have corrected done a bond for any correction um, which would have resulted in a lower um, alpha so for the squamous cell group uh, the median overall survival of pemetrexid was 9.4 months compared to 10.8 months with gemcitabine so what and that was not quite statistically significant p value is 0 0.05 exactly so you can argue um, with biostatistician purists of whether or not that's statistically significant so what you see is the pemetrexid arm um, performed better in patients with an adeno or large cell histology and performed poorer than the gemcitabine-based arm if they had squamous cell histology. So the authors puzzled by this. This has not ever been seen before in any non-small cell lung cancer study. Uh, they theorized that there are higher concentrations of thimidolite synthetase in preclinical models, at least, in squamous cell histology, and that's one of the targets for pemetrexid. So if there's a whole lot more concentration of thimidolite synthetase in squamous cell, pemetrexid, you need a lot more of it to block a significant amount of thimidolite synthetase in, um, activity to actually kill the cancer cells. Um, and I'll, I, I do want to give the, the authors, Scagliotti and folks, a shout out here. Here's um, their, their second to last sentence, or third to last sentence. These results are hypothesis generating and warrant a prospective study that is specifically designed to evaluate histology findings. That's exactly right. That's what they should say. This is, even though it's pre-planned, it's a subgroup analysis. It's not adequately powered to detect this. Um, and and biostatisticians have, um, purists have, have argued this. Um, so what happened after this? Did we get a prospective study specifically designed to evaluate histology findings? No, they went back and looked at the HANA paper from 2004 and found basically the same thing, that Pemetrex said uh, that there is a difference in histology and that it does consistently uh, work a little bit better uh, in those with adeno and large cell and a little bit worse uh, in those with squamous cell histology. Uh, so this was practice changing overnight. I was... Um, this was this came out in my first mo first month of my PGY2 oncology residency, and I remember this was the journal club at all, you know, it was a hot journal club article at the meetings and within societies, and was you know in all the significant papers of the year list. Uh, even though at face value it was a non-inferiority study that showed no difference in efficacy, um, and you know kind of an expected toxicity difference. But you look at that pre-planned subgroup analysis, and it really changed things. Um, and this has been dubbed um, the, quote, billion-dollar subgroup analysis by uh, Vinay Prasad, who's an MD, MPH uh, uh, 
oncologist at Oregon State University. Uh, he's kind of Twitter famous. Um, uh, I, I, tw- I tried following him for a while, but he, he sometimes gets into fights on Twitter, which I appreciate, but it clogs up my feed. So uh, anything good he says gets t- retweeted into my feed. I can go read his uh, tutorials on articles that, uh, that he opines on pretty frequently and vigorously, and uh, they're always enjoyable to read. So this is a, a JAMA Oncology article from uh, it's pretty recent. Uh, I think 2008. Uh, no, not 2008. I'll tweet this out along with the uh, the episode title. Uh, but anyway, he, he basically spends a couple pages going through this, and uh, there's a nice figure looking at the sales in billions of dollars of pemetrexid. So in 2007, it was just under a billion dollar in sales, about 150 million million or so in sales. By 2015, it had gone up to 2.5 billion dollars in sales. Um, and kind of the crux of the argument here is this is all based off of, you know, a, 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 a measly subgroup analysis. Now, you know, Pemetrexid's toxicity profile alone in a metastatic setting makes it a very attractive option. It's a very short, you know, it's a short 10-minute infusion, uh, so it's a, and it's a relatively safe drug, uh, so it's one that we like to give a lot. Um, but it's a little interesting path that Pemetrexid took to be, you know, being used pretty frequently. Uh, especially since adenocarcinoma is the most common histologic subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, but it's one of my favorite drugs, and again, the, the little clinical pearl I would leave you with is if a patient is on single-agent pemetrexid um, or even cisplatin pemetrexid has significant hematologic toxicity, always confirm that they're taking their B12 and folic acid. Well, that's what I have for you today. Um, next week, uh, I know since I've been out of town, we've got uh, an expanded approval for ribocyclob, um, so the first CD cyclin D kinase 4, 6 inhibitor approved in a premenopausal setting or even perimenopausal. Uh, we've also got an extended or expanded indications for nivolumab-ipilimumab combination as well as enzalutamide. And I'll also uh, point out that there is a great review article on CAR-T therapy in the New England Journal of Medicine from the last couple weeks. Uh, so if you want, if you have access to that and want, want to learn more about CAR-T and even listen to the audio of one of the pioneers of CAR-T, uh, go check that out. Uh, thanks for listening. And always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.